This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for July 22nd, 2019. In this podcast, I'll be talking to a researcher who has studied how where people live impacts their attitudes and their votes, and how people's attitudes and their votes shape where they choose to live. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up in a few minutes. And that leaves the people who are there in the smaller towns, on average, you know, less tolerant of diversity, less interested in encountering different cultures and different sorts of people. So when unfamiliar immigrants move into those areas, it's relatively alarming to that kind of population. That's coming up in a few minutes. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon, especially Joe De Silva, who signed up as a patron since the last podcast. I really appreciate that, Joe, and everyone else who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is a system that allows people like Joe to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to finding interesting guests and doing background research. If you think that you could do the same as him or the other donors, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. Most of you won't have listened to a radio service called Voice of America, and there's a good reason for that. Actually, it's not just radio anymore. They describe themselves as a multimedia service, and it's owned and funded by the US government. So why haven't you heard it? Because probably that's not allowed. Not to say that you're not allowed to tune in, but they, VOA as they're known, aren't allowed to broadcast to you if you live in the United States. In the good old days of shortwave radio broadcasts, that meant that they would aim their broadcasts at other countries, never at the USA. The main targets were Central and Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, Central Asia, Russia, and the Middle East, and their job was to promote the American point of view. It's a propaganda station. They've never been really that successful. They don't have the same brand recognition as the BBC World Service, uh, certainly not that level of trust. Like their Cold War competitors in Radio Moscow, they had a pretty heavy-handed bias that undermined their credibility. By the way, you shouldn't confuse Voice of America with Voice of Europe, which is a clickbait conspiracy website. Anyway, the reason that VOA isn't aimed at you, even though you can hear it if you really want to, is because the US Constitution is a bit sniffy about the government controlling the media. So the solution was that the broadcasts would be aimed exclusively outside the US. The dozens of languages that they broadcast in, including Khmer, Swahili, and Kurdish, reflect the places where the US wants to influence public opinion. It's all well and good targeting Cambodia, Tanzania, or Kurdistan, but targeting the US is seen as off-limits. 
That brings us to a tender put out by the Department of Homeland Security a little while back. They regularly advertise for external companies to do work for them. But this particular call for applications was a bit different. They were looking for a contractor to monitor traditional news sources and online social media and identify any and all coverage related to the agency or events that might interest it. That's pretty broad. They went on to say that the winning bidder would have to provide media comparison tools, design and rebranding tools, communication tools, and the ability to identify top media influencers. According to themselves, the Department of Homeland Security has a critical need to incorporate these functions into their programs in order to better reach federal, state, local, tribal, and private partners. Now, the democratic case why the US government, or any government for that matter, shouldn't be paying to influence media coverage aimed at their own citizens is pretty obvious. But why is the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Homeland Security, looking for tools to monitor what private citizens are blogging and tweeting? And why are they interested in identifying top media influencers? If they were keeping tabs on suspected terrorists, seeing whether what they say in public indicates that they're planning crimes in private, that would be one thing. But this has much more of a ring of trying to mould public opinion. If the DHS or any other brand of government wants to encourage people to speak and think highly of them, then the best way to do that would be to do a good job, not try to bully, threaten or cajole influencers into saying nice things about them. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On a Skype line now, I have Will Wilkinson. He's the Vice President for Research at the Niskanen Centre. He's also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Previously, he was a correspondent for The Economist and a research fellow at the Cato Institute. And last year, he wrote a paper called The Density Divide, urbanization, polarization, and populist backlash. Will, what do all these things have in common? Why did you think about writing this paper? The initial impetus was to try to figure out why Donald Trump became president, mm -hmm. why uh, Brexit happened in the UK, and why nationalist populist parties seem to be having unusual success you know, in Europe and uh, lots of other places around the world. Mm -hmm. It's a, been a puzzle that I think a lot of people have been um, vexed by and are looking for answers about. But I wasn't very satisfied with the answers that I was seeing. You know, it's just like backlash to immigration and demographic change or, mm -hmm. you know, people are fed up with political correctness uh, or people are, you know, immiserated by neoliberal globalism. And I, I had the sense that there's something deeper going on. So I wanted to dig into it. 
Um, well, one thing that you say with that and is the backlash, for example, against immigration and uh, the more populist parties rising. And you mention urbanization and density, by which I think you mean population density in your title. And I yes. recall that uh, the AFD, which is one of these uh, populist anti-immigrant parties, it was noted that the places where they did well in the German elections were the places where there are no immigrants at all. Is that relevant? Or how, how do you square that circle? Um, it, it, it is relevant. The, the thing that tends to predict um, anti-immigration positions has you know, very little to do with the immigrant portion of the population. Mm -hmm. and, you know, indeed, it's inversely related. The more immigrants there are right next to you, the more likely you're to be, you are to be friendly to immigrants. Um, what, what tends to predict um, backlash is, you know, the rate of change. Mm -hmm. um, you know, <laughs> and so if you live in a place where there was no immigrants and suddenly there's one uh, or two, uh, that's a, you know, the jump from zero to one and one to two is a big jump. It makes you feel like things are changing fast and you don't understand it. Um, and, 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 but more importantly, and like one of the things that I draw out in the paper, the places that are ethnically homogeneous, uh, or relatively uniform are in part that way because the people who have lived in those places, um, are precisely the people who haven't been as attracted to urbanization, who haven't been drawn to big, dense, diverse, multicultural cities for a variety of reasons. And that's really the theme of my paper. I explore how differences in responsiveness to the incentives that lead people to urbanize, mm -hmm. how those differences can sort and segregate national populations uh, in a way that has um, dramatic political implications. One thing that you mention in your paper is sorting. And I want to go into a couple of the subheadings that you have on that. But maybe first sure. of all, just tell us what you mean by sorting in population terms. What you know, sorting means is, you know, you, if you have a group of people um, and there are some salient difference um, among the individuals in the group. Sorting is the process by which like clusters with like and separates from dislike. So an example that I give in the, in, in the paper, which you know, I'm sure everyone has had an experience with, you, know, you go to a party uh, you know, and, and, and it's equal parts men and women. And sometimes you'll end up in a situation where all the women are clustered in one room talking about one thing and all the men are, you know, in another room talking about sports or something. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that and that and that's the party has sorted by gender. Mm -hmm. um, but you can have sorting by race, by religion, um, by education level, you know, anything that you can identify as an aspect of an individual uh, people can group along um, that dimension. Mm -hmm. um, and and in terms of politics, one of the things that I um, really probe in the paper are the sort of personality attributes that tend to predict whether people, 
will tend to have more socially liberal or socially conservative political opinions. Mm -hmm. um, those tendencies tend to um, be predicted by um, certain personality attributes. Um, and those same personality attributes also predict whether or not you're going to be super interested in going to university or finishing, whether or not you're going to be more or less averse to living around people who are unlike you, whether or not um, you're going to be attracted to just the very idea of migrating to an unfamiliar place. Um, and so one of the things that I you know, investigate is whether the population has sorted on um, the personality traits that tend to predict which way we'll vote. So essentially, you're talking about, you're asking the question, is it possible that one type of person tends to maybe migrate to larger cities, another type of person, another personality type is less likely to migrate and more likely to stay in smaller towns and villages? And I suppose my next question is, is it likely? Is that true? Well, I think the evidence for it is pretty strong. Um, like when you're thinking about um, urbanization, like one of the things that I try to emphasize is that we've overlooked the kind of immensity of the social force that urbanization is, the, the, the shift of national populations from the countryside to cities is the most dramatic change that's happened in human social life over the past 100 years. Right? And mm -hmm. So the population used to be relatively evenly scattered about the countryside. And over time, people have, you know, filtered toward these population centers, these cities, um, and more and more of the population is, is, is clustered there. Um, and in that kind of process where people are moving in one direction over time can filter that population um, on the you know, individual traits that make you more or less inclined to leave or stay. So it's kind of a story about the difference between you know, leavers and stayers. Um, and the personality attribute that I look at most closely is called mm -hmm. openness to experience it's strongly related to your you know opinions on social issues in politics not economic issues it turns out mm -hmm. um but it's also um uh related to um preferences about where to live generally whether or not you're interested in moving to a new place uh whether or not um you're interested in seeking a university degree, a lot of things that tend to line up with the way uh, the parties are aligning uh, along these traits at the same time. So where you get a, a confluence of, um, you know, partisan division and spatial or geographic division uh, at the same time, the most important urbanizing trait, the most, the thing that predicts it more than anything is mm -hmm. just ethnicity. Um, so pretty much anywhere you go, uh, the you know minority populations are likely to cluster heavily in cities. Everybody yes, yeah, you have you have a subchapter subchapter on why minority populations prefer urban density. Uh, why? Well, one of the overarching principles that runs through the paper is that 
people like to be around people like them. Um, mm-hmm. you know, social scientists call it, you know, homophily, uh, you know, just like the love of sameness. Um, and, you know, and this, that's a constant trait among human beings. Like we like to be around people who uh, share our experiences that look like us, that, you know, eat similar foods, that like the same shows on TV, right? Like that, those pa- are pa- Pausing on that, some people who will know a particular uh, British comedy will be very familiar with the line, uh, the only gay in the village. Is it possible that whether you're gay or perhaps in, in uh, uh, the medieval times in Europe, maybe Jewish or some other minority, that if you're the only one of that person in the village, that life isn't all that pleasant. But if you move to a large city, you're certain to meet more people like you and and life is better for that reason. That's exactly it. Um, yeah, no, no, nobody wants to be the only gay in the village. Uh, and you don't want to be the only uh, black person in the village. You don't want to be the only Jew in the village, right? So you're, especially if your minority group is, doesn't have equal social status, ha- is historically persecuted, you're going to go seek safety in numbers. Um, okay, pause pause on that because you're really turning over something in my head that I believed for a long time and that I know a lot of people believe, which is uh, this point that we observed previously, that people who are most hostile to minority groups are the people who encounter them least. And I, I think the standard explanation for that was once you get to know them, they're fine. Yes. But it may not be that. It may be, if I'm reading you correctly, it may be that people who think, who get on with them anyway, are more likely to cluster. And people who are likely to have a problem with them are sorting themselves by not clustering and not moving to larger urban centers. So it's not the fact that a higher level of familiarity creates less hostility. It's possibly the the reverse. Yeah, I I, I don't think those they're mutually exclusive answers. Um, I think that you know both effects are are very very real. There's very good evidence that just contact and familiarity tends to reduce hostility. So, like I mentioned, like people, you know, freak out the most when the first few immigrants show up uh, like and that's simply due to total unfamiliarity. Mm -hmm. Um, But as that population grows, becomes integrated in the community, it's less striking and people become comfortable with it. So 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 there's a you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, what's called the contact hypothesis. For instance, my hometown, which I talk about a lot in the the paper, Marshalltown, Iowa, Mm -hmm. when I was uh, in high school. Not the, not the biggest urban center in the U.S. No, no, not the biggest. It's 27,000 people. Uh, it's not big at all. Um, and when I was in high school, um, there were barely any, um, you know, Hispanic people living there. Um, today, it's nearly 30% Mexican. Um, mm-hmm. the, there's been a, a huge increase in the Mexican population, partly because the Native population, you know, the schools are pretty good in Iowa. They do a good job of educating the students. And the biggest employer in Marshalltown is a meatpacking plant. And it's just jobs that the that the native white kids weren't interested in. And if the meatpacking plant was going to stay open, they had to get workers from somebody else. And it turned out to be Mexicans from 
um, they are all interestingly enough, speaking of like homophily, uh, people from the same town in Mexico, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. like they're all from the same area. They're, so it's chain migration with a bunch of people who are, um, you know, family and friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the early phase of that, um, there was incredible amount of discomfort in, in, in Marshalltown about this increasing Hispanic population. Um, but now it's gone on so long that the school, you know, the schools are about half, uh, you know, minority now. Um, and, and, you know, that generation of kids is just was born there. They've grown up there. They're on the little league team with your kids. And so it just completely normalizes it. And so whatever, um, hostility there was at the beginning has, has really pretty substantially subsided. So I think there's a lot to just, to, to just familiarity and contact, but it is also true that the people who are, have the strongest desire to not live around people who are dislike them, Mm -hmm. um, are least likely to move it all. So, so then to move on, and I don't want to um, mention the T word too much, but is it possible that, and taking Marshalltown as an example, that type of chain migration into that, into a place like that is something that might trigger populism, support for people like Donald Trump and hostility to immigrants because that's a native white population or a white population that most certainly didn't select by moving themselves to be in a very diverse, live in a very diverse place. Yeah, I think I think as you get um, so the the overall dynamic that I describe that over time as the population sorts itself, the higher openness to experience people, the people who are um, most friendly and tolerant toward diversity hmm. will tend to select into the bigger cities, um, which tend to have more job opportunities, um, you know, bigger labor markets, especially if you have a, a college degree, that's where the, the wage bonus to your college education is going to be highest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the higher openness people will tend to gravitate um, toward the cities, you know, partly for the, you know, the, you know, only gay in the village <laughs> kind, kinds mm-hmm. of reasons. Like if you're a relatively liberal minded person in a conservative place, that mismatch is a little bit uncomfortable. And then the opportunities in the city are better anyway. So that, you know, makes it an easy sell to move away and go to the city. And that leaves the people who are there in the smaller towns um, less, on average, you know, less tolerant of diversity, um, less interested in encountering different cultures and different sorts of people. So when, um, you know, unfamiliar immigrants move into those areas, um, it's relatively alarming to that kind of population. You have one other chapter title, which says the density bonus is a tax on diversity averse whites. So a diversity averse whites are, I guess, the people who are less likely to move into, into new places. And why is that the case that the diversity, what is the diversity bonus and why is it a tax on some whites? Well, so the, the, the density bonus is, so the, the whole reason that urbanization is this you know, huge transformative force is that economic production 
just keeps concentrating more and more in dense urban areas. Uh, and there are many, many, you know, complicated reasons for that. But the, but the, you know, the, the bottom line is that people produce more when you pack them close together, you can have, you know, a finer grain specialization, but also when you have a lot of talent to people together, they sort of increase each other's skill level. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, if you're, if you're the a so-so basketball player and you start playing with guys who are a little bit better than you, you know, it kind of improves your game. And over time, like the productivity of labor in, in, in cities gets higher. So people make more money in those places and the opportunities start to gravitate there. So there are, so you're going to just do better, um, economically for most people living in a city. Um, and, but as those cities become more diverse over time, as they have a you know wider array of different ethnicities, religions, cultures, um, th- those places become kind of scarier to people who aren't that interested in being around people who are unlike them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and so, choosing to stay away from the city um, has a pretty big opportunity cost. You're not going to get the bonus from higher urban productivity, right? And, and, and so that those foregone earnings from, from, uh, you know, deciding not to seek the wage bonus from, um, urbanization or higher education, Mm -hmm. that, that is effectively like a, a a penalty on staying in place, right? Mm Because you're going to earn less there. Um, and, and that's what I mean by the, the, the density, um, bonus being a, a tax on diversity averse whites. So the diversity averse whites, um, because they prefer very strongly to be in a relatively uniform, ethnically uniform community, they're willing to forego those extra earnings. So they pay, they're willing to pay a price to stay in a community uh, of people who look a lot more like them. Okay. And is the corollary of that, that migrants from foreign countries who typically move into dense urban areas, they are then, I think perhaps tax and subsidy is maybe not the best vocabulary for this, but they're doing better because they're willing to go to the densest urban areas. You put that economic fact side by side by diversity versus whites being paying a penalty for not going to those areas. Is that perhaps an explanation of some of the economic lack of satisfaction of blue collar whites? Yeah, a- a- absolutely. So that's a, a big part of my story uh, is that if, um, you know, over time, the, the, the shift of productivity and opportunity to the city has reduced the productivity and level of opportunity in these more ethnically homogenous, lower density small towns and villages and countryside, right? So the people who've chosen to stay there have a, sort of a declining uh, material prospects, fewer good jobs. The jobs that are there are less satisfying and play mm-hmm. lower wages. Um, and so in order to, you know, like as you're saying, if, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, dispositionally conservative or liberal, if you're a, an immigrant from India, you're going to move to a, a, an ethnic enclave in a big city 
But that's where the economic opportunities are. Is it possible then that people who might otherwise have been conservative, who've moved from India or whatever other country to a very dense urban area, that they then, or perhaps their second or third generation of their families, gravitate much more towards political liberalism than they would otherwise have done? Yeah, I, I, I do think so. I mean, one of the things that I point out is that the that the personality traits that tend to predict social versus social liberalism versus conservatism are are are, are relatively normally distributed across mm-hmm. the population, but also across ethnic subpopulations. There are just as many, um, you know, the 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 the, the proportion of non-white people who are dispositionally conservative is just the same as the proportion of white people who are dispositionally conservative. Um, but when the party, when parties align partly on, on along racial lines, uh, so in the United States, it's just the, the, the Democratic Party just is the party for non-white people for the most part. And those people also happen to be urban. So so just not being white um, creates a pretty strong bond, at least to the Democratic Party, whether or not you're dispositionally liberal or conservative. Um, and in fact, you get a strange inversion with – so one of the traits that is related to openness is what some social sciences call ethnocentrism, just in-group favoritism. Mm-hmm. And the more socially conservative you are, the str- higher your level of ethnocentrism or in-group attachment. Um, mm-hmm. And for minority groups, um, conservatism means you're more strongly attached to your ethnic in-group. Mm-hmm. And the more you feel that your ethnic in-group is threatened by the majority ethnic group's party, the more strongly you'll attach to it. Mm-hmm. Right? So, 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 so a dispositionally conservative... So the, uh, browner the, the browner the Democrats get, the whiter the Republicans get. Well, the, 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 yeah, in, in a way, the, the more, the, so it's sort of interesting like, when you, when you think about it, it's not intuitive to people. One of the reasons why Barack Obama say did so much better uh, than Hillary Clinton is because he had much, much higher African-American turnout. Um, but one of the reasons, one of the things that, that I think drives that higher level of turnout, which I think is neglected, is that he's actually activating the most conservative African-American voters. Mm -hmm. Those are voters who aren't that interested in socially liberal content. What they're really interested in is a sense of ethnic representation and status. Um, And they're just like like white conservatives. They're just like white conservatives. They're really concerned with these questions of identity and, 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 representation. And so simply seeing a black man um, running for president is really motivating to them. Um, But in in a way, that's conservatives turning out to vote. Is the reverse true as well? Seeing a a black man as president motivated certain types of white people to go out and vote against him? Absolutely. And that is one of the things that has sorted the American electorate more cleanly for you know, uh, one of the anomalies, in a way, of American politics was that the parties actually weren't very cleanly sorted on ideology. There were a lot of conservative Democrats and a lot of 
liberal Republicans, and that's almost completely ended, um, uh, you know, in 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 the traditional sense. So, and, and that was largely caused by the fact that that you know historically, by the fact that that Southern whites had a strong attachment to the. Democratic Party. LBJ predicted the end of that. And I think we've described very well where that and um, what you call the that great divergence is coming from. I'm interested in where it's going to, because what you're describing is a phenomena that doesn't seem to have any obvious inbuilt limiting factor. Is this something that could just get more and more extreme? Um, well, that's my worry. Uh, the, you're right. There's not the, the only really inbuilt limiting factor is just the 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 fact that urbanization can't go on forever, right? The, so the United States population is about eighty percent urbanized now, mm. um, and 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 the closer you get to one hundred percent, the more it slows down, right? Like you can't keep going at the same rate, mm-hmm. um, and it will be ninety percent in twenty forty something. To put, uh, it, to put an asterisk beside that, to put an asterisk beside that, that urbanization includes the suburbs, which aren't really very densely populated at all, particularly by international standards. They're quite low population density areas. Are you taking that into account? Well, I mean, they're relatively high um, compared to you know, most of the country, mm-hmm. um, the, the there there are huge differences within the city, like many factors of magnitude. Um, so the, the 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 densest part of San Francisco, say, is you know is you know twenty times more dense than just a like a, a residential street that has single family homes. Mm-hmm. But even a in a city, if you have just a bunch of houses right next to each other on a uh, on a on a residential street, that level of population density is still relatively high. Um, where where the parties tend to split is, you know, around nine hundred to a thousand people per square mile, and that's about where the you know outer suburbs break into the exurbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and so the more the denser side of what I call the density divide um, includes most of the suburbs. Um, it, it's it, which isn't you know nearly as dense as the urban core, um, but the but as but that urban core is the most liberal part of any city, and as you. So, so you can you can literally uh, put you can literally density. put a, the population density on a spectrum and you can mark out the point where the dominant political party flips. Yes, but I shouldn't have interrupted you because I drew drew you away from the point of where does this bring us? Well, where this brings us is is I, I think completely unclear. It, it's a matter of what we do. the The implication of the sorting of the population on the traits that tend to predict liberalism and conservatism and right voting versus left voting um, really, really depends a lot on the structure of a country's electoral institutions. So it doesn't have any determinate, you know, determinate political implications that's, you know, heavily mediated by the structure of the political system. Mm -hmm. And the, um, and, and the consequences are very much very different in 
a system like the United States, which has, you know, first past the post winner take all elections, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which will tend to divide the population roughly into two equally sized halves. Mm-hmm. And, and having exactly two political parties, no more and no less, compared yeah. to in Europe, where typically uh, parliament would have five or 15 political parties represented. Yes. So that so having a um, a multi-party parliamentary system will tend to mitigate this process a little. Like the same process is going on and you should still expect to see uh, because of the polarizing effects of this division, you should expect to see the populist or nationalist party gaining vote share and gaining seats in parliaments. But that will tend not to be a, um, a you know, a big enough portion of the population to uh, you know, win um, control of the government, you know, maybe as a minority partner in a coalition. Um, but you don't get the possi- the same kind of possibility that you do in a country like the U.S., where the, the, the sort of nativist, nationalist, populist faction can can win control of one of the two parties and then win control of the entire government. That's much less likely with a with a multi-party proportional system. Will Wilkinson, Vice President for Research at the Niskanen Centre, writing about the density divide, urbanisation, polarisation and the populist backlash. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thanks for having me on, William. Enjoyed it. Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter and follow Will Wilkinson at Will Wilkinson and get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, thanks to everyone who has signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means I can devote more time to finding interesting guests and to doing background research. And if you can do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. You can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free there on your computer, on your phone or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's July 29th, I'll be talking to Andrew Branca, a firearms legal consultant and gun rights advocate. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>